go unnoticed almost zero chance i mean we 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 notice everything we see everything but seeing the missiles and being able to shoot them down in midair are two very different things Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? My name is Gray, and this is another episode of the Gray F Podcast. And a lot of you guys are already wondering, what do we have and who do we have today? We have another experienced and another exciting guest uh, by the name of Mans Herman. For those of you who do not know who Mans is, he is an experienced technology executive and entrepreneur with over 20 years of strategic leadership experience in multinational corporations, government agencies, and high-tech startups with proven ability to develop and lead business strategy, operations, sales, and technical teams. He is an expert in the design, development, and delivery of advanced technologies to meet business financial, competitive, and customer demands. Uh, As a technology expert, he is really into distributed consensus much like Hashgraph, Blockchain, etc. Machine Learning, Identity, and Cybersecurity. So, Mans is definitely an incredible human being and we discuss quite a lot of things. Among those were his military experience with the US Air Force since he has worked with them before. And he answered questions like how likely are they to detect a bomb or a missile in the air before it actually goes off if somebody had to deploy it. Uh, His experience with other companies he has built and how him and his co-founder, Lemon Beard, has, you know, has been together for a very long time and started companies together and stayed friends, which I find to be difficult, I mean, uh, in the real world. Uh, people don't usually do that. They usually break up at one point uh, after a few years of running companies together. But he has managed to stay with Lemon for a long time, that they're also co-founders in Hedera Hashgraph. Uh, which is the previous company that he's working with. And um, he's the co-founder as well. So we discussed that and then we discussed the elephant in the room, which is Hedera Hashgraph. Uh, And for those of you who have never heard of Hedera Hashgraph, I recommend that you Google it. But in layman terms, it's just another distributed consensus technology like blockchain. But these guys claim that this is actually better than blockchain. So I'll leave and let you guys enjoy it. Uh, remember to subscribe to the Grave Podcast on Apple Podcast, on SoundCloud, on uh, Spotify, and all other uh, podcasting platforms. Enjoy my conversation with Mans. Hey, Mans, how are you? Hi, Gray. How are you? I'm well. Uh, good. Um, I wonder where you you calling from today. Yeah, actually, I am in my home office in Dallas, Texas. Okay, that's so, interesting. Yeah, glad to be home. I travel so much these days that this, this can be a rare occurrence, which is nice. Awesome. Like on, on average per month, how many days are you, are you at home? Well, this year, I've probably been on the road more than half. I, I think that's, that's probably the case. We, we did some really long, you know, stretches where I was gone for a long period of time. We did a world tour beginning back in March. And then uh, since then, it's just been, you know, uh, shorter, uh, shorter trips. And those trips are three or four or five days. So, 
you know, roughly half the time I, I'm probably on the road. Awesome. So I, you know, I, I've watched some of your interviews before, but I think before we, we even get into that, let's just uh, get your introduction on if you meet people on the streets who don't know anything about uh, technology or blockchain or hashgraph, how do you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, well, so if I introduce myself uh, to, to somebody brand new, then I would tell them that I'm the CEO and founder of Hedera Hashgraph, and if they know anything about crypto, or let's say if they don't know anything about crypto, then, then they probably heard of Bitcoin and maybe have heard about Ethereum, and I would just tell them that this is the next generation uh, platform you know, for that category of technology. Right. So, in terms of, I've, I've watched some of your interviews and uh, you have had an, uh, some history working with the Air Force before. Yeah. Yeah, well, so that was fun. Um, I started my career in the military. I So, even prior to the military, I, I come from a very rural tiny little town in Mississippi which is a very you know rural part of the United States comparatively and uh, to to leave that I I enlisted in the Air Force initially got a scholarship they sent me to school and got I got my degree and then they sent me to work in a lab I got a commission as an officer they sent me to work in a lab doing basic research and machine learning reinforcement learning in particular with neural networks and that's where I met Lehman who is my co-founder and um, and then from there I went and taught at the Air Force Academy computer science actually I, I went to get my masters in between the the machine learning work and in the Academy they sent me back to school to get my master's also in artificial intelligence machine learning and then I went to teach at the Air Force Academy computer science um, I was a course director for cybersecurity and then my last gig with the Air Force was managing a massive software campaign um, for the missile defense agency where the government learns how to protect its citizens and allies from incoming nuclear ballistic missiles and so there was quite a, an interesting run with the Air Force um, and they they were very good to me and paid all of my school expenses uh, as I sort of boot, bootstrapped out of rural America that's very interesting so I'm just interested a little bit with the with the national defense uh, national defense and stuff so if, yeah. if you national security so if you with what you, you were doing, how would you rate uh, national security from from a scale of one to ten? If a missile had to go through in the air, what are the chances that it wouldn't it would go unnoticed? Oh, <laughs> so uh, the, the, yeah, it's an interesting question. So go unnoticed, almost zero chance. Oh, I mean, wow. we 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 notice everything. We see everything. But seeing the missiles and being able to shoot them down in midair are two very different things. And, you know, the Missile Defense Agency, our job was to figure out how to shoot them down. <laughs> and so, um, 
we yeah so, so we know they're coming the, the question is can we knock them out of the sky before they get to us right. and and so you know when I was there that was actually a really long time ago I left the military in 2002 so is that 16 years ago and uh, and and I you know I don't know the state of the art in terms of missile defense today although I'm quite certain it's it's way beyond where it was when I was involved way back then. So, yeah, but but clearly it's it's an, it's a capability that uh, has some merit. I would assume, you know, I mean, meaning that it it works uh, to some degree. Uh, but I I don't know the details anymore. It's been too long. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I always wonder, you know, in terms of like, if really something had to happen, do we have the technology to? I'm, I'm, I think I'm always wondering how much uh, the national security uh, department knows about what's going on, to, you know, ins and outs. But anyway, so yeah. so what what led you to say quit your uh, to quit your military career and say you want to get into entrepreneurship? Yeah, well, so I've always, as an adult, now in my forties. I can look back on life and see patterns and see indicators. And what I can recognize now that I didn't really recognize, you know, when I was in college necessarily, was that I've always been an entrepreneur. And and even in college and you know in high school, uh, I would do things that maybe are are out of the box or not what people would typically do at that age. To uh, you know, to try and, and, and make money, <laughs> and so when I when I enlisted in the Air Force, uh, I knew I wasn't staying in the Air Force, but I needed a way to pay for college. Uh, my father uh, was a minister. My mother was a nurse, and we lived in rural Mississippi, and come from a very lower middle class background with with really no money. And so when I went into the military, it was because I needed a way to pay for college. And, that's, and that was the perspective I always had. I ended up spending a total of 11 years active duty. And, um, and I left as soon as I could after having paid my, my debt to, to the military for paying for my college. And that was always the plan. And, and when I left, it was in, well, the bubble had just burst, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, the dot-com bubble had, had just burst. Even so, I had started uh, my first company with Lehman back in 2000, even prior to leaving the military. And, and we started it just before the bubble burst. And so we ran that first startup through that dot-com bubble bursting. And then, uh, you know, even so, my first opportunity to leave the military, I took it and dove headfirst into the world of entrepreneurship and have been there ever since. So I don't know, it's just in my DNA, I guess, to, uh, to do the kinds of things that we're doing today. Right, that's interesting. And then what, did you have a specific idea when you, uh, you was coming out of the military of what you was going to do? Or you just said, well, maybe I'll figure something out. Yeah. So in grad school, this is an interesting story, maybe. In grad school, this is 1997 and 98, 
Lehman and I were um, working in Java. We were writing some some Java-based applications, and there was an international Java programming contest. I remember, and we decided. So we were building a distributed simulator in Java way back then, and so we entered in this into this. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was sponsored by a professional organization. We entered this competition and we won. We we got first place uh, internationally, and the result of that was that I got a my first PDA. I got the old 3Com Palm Pilot way before it was even Palm, and I was learning how to program the Palm Pilot, and I ended up that first those first experiences just teaching myself how to program a Palm Pilot turned into a real application. It turned into a distributed single sign-on solution. Basically, you would prove your identity to the Palm in multiple ways and then see a list of all your accounts. You would choose the account and then the Palm would talk to the computer, launch the web browser, and log you into that account. So it was a, you know, it was an identity management solution. And that turned into our first company and, and that happened you know, two years before I was able to leave the military, and so, so we got some money. We raised friends and family money, and uh, a small, a small round, three hundred thousand dollars of seed money, and uh, and then I negotiated a strategic partnership. And the moment I was able to leave the military, we did so, and we ended up selling that to uh, Symbol Technologies. Actually, we took it. We took this idea directly to Palm, and I remember I went and pitched this to Palm and said this single sign-on solution should be a part of your OS. Actually, it was Palm Source. It wasn't Palm. It was Palm Source. The operating system had split from the hardware manufacturer by then, and I talked to a guy named Lee Williams, who was a VP of engineering back then at Palm Source. And they decided they wanted to do a licensing agreement and put it into the operating system. And then through a series of, of unfortunate uh, circumstances, namely Lee leaving Palm Source and then the biz dev leaving and then the, the product manager actually leaving as well, really three strikes, then the deal was dead. But it, it turned out that um, Lee ended up at Symbol Technologies and Symbol just decided to buy us. And so, because Symbol Technologies, part of Motorola, actually sells more PDAs, or did at that point in time, than Palm did. They were just for industrial uses rather than consumer. So that was the first experience as, as being an entrepreneur, and it grew out of, you know, happen, happening to win this, uh, this Java programming competition and getting my first Palm Pilot back in 1998. Right, and um, how did you then? How did you and Lehman uh, came across the idea of Hashgraph? How did it all started? And it's interesting to me that you have been working together. You know, uh, I heard for for twenty five years now, eh? And yeah, <laughs> yeah. So since ninety three. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so what have, what has been the factor that keeps you guys together to this point? Ah. Oh. You know that's a it, <laughs> that's a great question. I think um, I that's a great question. Why do Lehman and I 
why are we so close as friends and and have been able to sort of survive multiple startups and 25 years of working together um we're both kind of odd fellows i think is the <laughs> real answer <laughs> uh, we, we both have some very peculiar interests and um and we go all in you know we both have this characteristic when we when we latch on to something of interest we go all in and our interests are very much aligned and our value systems are aligned and uh, and so Lehman so when I was working with Lehman back in the 90s doing basic research and machine learning he and I our job was to to publish it was very much an academic endeavor we would we would do algorithm development write up the results and then publish in journals you know peer-reviewed journals and conferences and I I, well, while I was able to to do well relative maybe to the typical person, even then I realized I would never be Lehman's equal. Lehman is just world class, better than anyone I've ever seen. And I've been in the world of academia for a long time, and uh, and I've seen that. And and so I decided um, I'm going to focus on the business side of. Uh, you know, entrepreneurship and let Lehman solve the hard technical problems and come up with these fantastic ideas and solutions. And the two of us together, that set of skills, that combination of skills actually is really powerful. And, um, and that's what's worked well. We both um, respect each other, uh, our abilities, our complementary abilities very highly and we, you know, we've worked well together, and and at this point, you know, we're like family, sort of like brothers, and uh, and you know, the combination just seems to seems to be working really well and of great value. Yes, wow. yes. Oh, okay. Um, okay, good. I was muted. Sorry. Uh, how did the the idea of Hashgraph uh, come together? Then for you guys to actually form it as a company to this point where you raised uh, $100 million and you're still going with it. Yeah, so so Lehman and I sold our second company back in December of 2012. And at about that time, he had this idea for something back then he was calling a distributed object store. We didn't really have a good name. Sorry, what was the, what are the company that you sold then? Oh, the second company uh, was Blue Wave Security, and this was a so, so. The first company was this distributed single sign-on solution using Palm Pilots. We sold the symbol. The second company was another identity and access management company, but basically uh, creating Wi-Fi locking mechanisms, physical security with identity management, and. Uh, and we sold that in December to private equity, December 2012 to private equity. And, and Lehman, you know, had this thought. He, he would like to create what we call back then a distributed object store. And really, it was this notion of how do we create a database where we can, it, it's a multi-master database, meaning that you have multiple nodes in this shared database system in any time anyone makes a change to any one of the nodes, that change, that write transaction, has to be propagated to all the nodes. 
And all the nodes have to agree on the order of these changes so that they, they stay in sync with one another. If you apply the changes in different order, then the databases don't stay in sync. So this was the fundamental problem that he was wanting to work on. And he, and he, he viewed it as a way of eliminating the need for a single party um, from having to be responsible for running the database. And so it goes way back to 2012, and, and he worked on it for years, literally, on and off. And then I, I went to work for Ping Identity as the head of labs and architecture, uh, just as a placeholder, you know, a place to, to, to contribute, doing something of value until we figured out what our next business was going to be. And it happened to be that Bitcoin, you know, became prominent and... Uh, you know, in 2013 and 2014, I started following Bitcoin and really trying to understand the value of blockchain as it relates to identity and access management and came to the conclusion that there was no real good use case for blockchain with Bitcoin, Bitcoin blockchain in particular, because of all the constraints, technical constraints of the technology. And Lehman recognized that what he was doing was a you know, a significant improvement over blockchain in terms of the technology and the theory behind it. And, and then, so, so we, we sort of witnessed firsthand the making of a market because of Bitcoin for the technology that Lehman had started working on in 2012. So by the time we got to 2015, early 2015, we knew that if he could solve this problem, it was of huge value. And, uh, and, and later in 2015, we knew he was going to be able to solve the problem. And of course he did. In the summer of 2015, he had a breakthrough. And today we call that the hash graph. And, uh, and so, so that was the genesis of it all. And that happened here in Texas. It was really a combination of being in Austin Austin, Texas, where we would get together regularly at Starbucks. Some people might have seen our, our video from a few weeks back where we launched a main net from that Starbucks, that same Starbucks. And then it you know, continued at another Starbucks in College Station uh, later in 2015 until just this past year when we moved uh, the company to Dallas, Texas. But that's, that's the origins of it. It was really just a math problem. Uh, and this is the way Lehman's mind works. He comes up with these really hard complex math problems that he tries to solve and he works on them literally for years and um, and sometimes he he solves them and it happens to he solved this one and the market timing was perfect and so it was just uh, it was a rare opportunity to take take this kind of technology and and go to market with it right so when hashgraph came out um, I mean to this point, People still like to compare it to, you know, blockchain and say, okay, is this better than blockchain or not? Others try to compare, uh, to have a comparison to IOTA as well, because you guys, what you have done is to come up with something new other than building something on the blockchain, like many others have done, yeah. is using the Ethereum protocols and stuff. Uh, so how do you distinguish to like, you know, to an average person who is not technical? the difference between the two and what would be the use cases uh, for Hashgraph that you can see happening in the next few years or what others are already building on top of you right now? 
Yeah, well, for those that are not technical, um, the the analogies are pretty simple, right? Um, for blockchain, and when we talk about blockchain here, what we're really talking about are the public ledgers, not the closed or permission networks, but the public ledgers. Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum using proof of work blockchain, th those are what we're talking about. The difference is night and day in terms of performance. You know, five or 15 transactions per second versus what we're expecting to be 100,000 or better transactions per second for cryptocurrency transactions. And, and the fundamental difference is that blockchain as a term, it describes both the data structure, a chain of blocks of transactions, and a consensus algorithm, the community coming to agreement on which block to put on top of this chain. In other words, it's a very serial process. Every member of the network has a local copy of this blockchain, chain of blocks, and occasionally one of these members uh, is able to publish a new block. Um, when they, you know, using this proof of work mechanism, they'll publish a new block, and the community will validate that block and put that block then on top of their local copy of the blockchain. Well, that's a very linear process, very, very, very serial process, and it takes a while for the community to come to agreement on which blocks to put on top of the chain, so you have to slow down the network. And that's what proof of work is all about. It's slowing down the network so that there's enough time for the members of the community to come to an agreement on which block to put on top of this chain. Hashgraph is just the opposite. So as a term, it's it's not uh, it's not a chain, it's a graph, meaning that every member of the network can can take transactions and submit them to the network whenever they want, as fast as they want. They don't have to use proof of work or anything that artificially slows down the process. These transactions flow across the network to all the members. Each member locally keeps a, a, a version of this graph, an instance of this graph that grows upward with time. And uh, the math works out so that each member can sort of look at the graph and put the transactions that are in that graph into an order and every member when they do that activity they take these transactions and put them into an order they put them into exactly the same order using the same math the same algorithm and and because of this it's not it's not serial it's parallel and there's no proof of work or anything that artificially slows it down and for that reason it can be blazingly fast compared to compared to blockchain or a, a chain, and it has some really cool math properties that simply mean that it's not uh, susceptible to certain types of attacks, cyber attacks that blockchain and other consensus algorithms are, leader-based systems, etc. So it's got fantastic security properties, the best that one can have. And it's got fantastic performance at the same time, and it has everything to do with the fundamental architecture of the data structure and then the consensus algorithm that's used to put the transactions in order. So at a conceptual level, that's that's how it works, or the, the difference between the two, I should say. 
So one might ask then that if this is so, you know, blockchain is still in it's still kind of new to to the average person out there or to a lot of people. And yeah. now if you come out and say, well, we have come up with uh, Hashgraph, it's actually it has a, a lot more better features than blockchain. So one might would ask that, OK, so is this going to be the next generation? Is this going to take over blockchain now or these are going to be running in parallel, much like, you know, IOTA and uh, other solutions that are out there? What do you think is going to be the future then of decentralized applications? Yeah. Well, so there are two answers to that. Um, I, I think that as a technology, this definitely uh, is going to gain prominence and that blockchain proofs and especially proof of work blockchain will fade away. No question in my mind that blockchain, proof of work blockchain in particular, will diminish and fade away and that Hashgraph, uh, th this approach, will increase in terms of usage and prominence. But that's a very different question than will a particular platform or a particular project uh, increase or decrease in usage or, or prominence because any given platform can and will very likely um, migrate over time the technology that it's it's being developed on top of. I mean, Ethereum is a good example, right? Ethereum started with proof-of-work blockchain. They have a project, Casper, of course, where they're trying to move away from proof-of-work blockchain to uh, a you know a different model, basically. Like Proof-of-stake, right? Uh, well, it's yeah, exactly. It's Dedicated proof-of-stake, proof of I think, something like that. Right, and and so will they be able to accomplish that? I don't know. But it, it, they're trying, and I'm sure that other projects will do the same. And so it's hard to say what will happen with any given project. But categorically, I can say that blockchain as a technology will probably go away at some point in in deference to uh, you know the next generation of of algorithms. And this is not. I mean, this is the, just the way the world works generally. If we look at Ethernet, way back at the early days of um, networking. You know the protocol that we called Ethernet way back then looks nothing like the protocol that is Ethernet today. Ethernet as a term sort of stuck, even though the underlying protocols that were being uh, being used to implement it changed dramatically over time. And and this this is true today as well. I don't know if the term blockchain will necessarily stick around for the long term. I mean there. It, there's some serious fundamental differences between blockchain and Hashgraph, both in terms of the technology and the names. But you know there is one possibility here where the the, the branding of the term blockchain sticks, if you will, where the technology underneath the hood is not a blockchain at all. And so, but yeah, that that's those are my thoughts. That is a very good point. I mean, considering that you know these technologies are coming out of the same time when the world is at a sort of a blockchain hype, you know, so everything new kind of dealing decentralized, it's just considered blockchain. Um, yes. So what's interesting to me also is that you have taken the business side of things in the technology. What I've um, noticed in the last couple of years is that 
uh, a lot of people that are highly technical, especially engineers, when they come into the business, I've seen this happen a lot in Silicon Valley, observing Silicon Valley CEOs or companies. It, it's, it, it's a very difficult jump for engineers to switch to the business side of things because they find it difficult to, uh, I would say, digest concepts that cannot be measurable uh, with numbers that are not that clear, you know, there's no anal analytics with things like marketing and sales, for example. You know, one, yeah, uh, I I've read a book by Peter Thiel, those were the things that they you know the paper guys were also looking down on just because they thought it's the product that matters, just building something. But you have gone, you know, through an ICO and having to raise 100, 100 million dollars. I wonder how was that transition for you into like you know, business as a whole. So, you know, it's interesting. I've always been interested in the business side of it. And um, while I consider myself a computer scientist and I'm very technical, I have I've been just as interested in the strategy associated with business for as long as I can, as long as I can remember. And... Um, and, and so I, I, I don't know exactly why that is, but I do recognize the value of having that mix. Having the ability to understand uh, the language of business as well as the strategy and tactics that are associated with it, and at the same time understanding the technology and, and being able to speak that language and being able to communicate across those different constituencies is really important. I, I mean, I, objectively, I can recognize the value of that. I, I it, it is the case that uh, you know there are a lot of engineers that are just focused on the the engineering and, or the computer science, and that's their strength, and they don't focus on the business at all. The business is a learned skill, right? I mean, the mo a lot of it, it, it can can be learned, and then there are parts of it where it just boils down to judgment and decision-making processes and viewing the world what I can say is this what I what I absolutely do believe is that the skill set that I learned you know when I was in middle school sixth and seventh grade learning how to program the Texas Instruments a TI-99 4A that was my first computer and learning basic way back then the skill set of taking a hard problem and decomposing it into uh, much smaller problems, each of which can be um, solved more easily and, uh, and understanding how to do that, not just in terms of programming, but then transferring that, that skill to you know, a larger context like business processes and et cetera, et cetera, life in general, functional decomposition of problem sets into smaller Smaller subcomponents that can, and those can then each individually be be solved in a in a more uh, easier way. That that skill just works well in all of life, and especially in business. But recognizing that and learning how to apply that skill set in a different context, to, you know, to life and business is the trick. And um, and you know, it's hard for me to say why why we've been able to do that and others haven't. But recognizing that, that that's what's going on and identifying people that can make that leap, can go from writing code and using that skill just with coding to, to other contexts um, is the trick.
Right. So wh- how did why did you have to go through? Um, you know, you you went through a private sale and you didn't you didn't do a public sale as much. Eh? You you only went to like right. accredited investors and stuff. Yeah. Well, yep. that has everything to do with the SEC. Um, so we we started from the very beginning. Uh, knowing that we wanted this company to be domiciled in the United States, we we sort of assumed that regulation is coming, it will come, and there's no way to escape it. And so the only way that you get from where we are today uh, to where we want to be, and that is a company that's going to survive for a hundred years. That's our goal: is to build a hundred-year company is that you you have to make the assumptions that really two things one that there was going to be a downturn in the crypto market probably the bubble would it would burst you know we sort of expected the crypto bubble would burst and we wanted to come out the other side and that there would be regulation and so all the decisions that have gone into the the company have been to that end to surviving the eventual bubble bursting and surviving being one of those platforms and projects that withstands muster when it comes to uh, regulation by security by the SEC and other agencies, not just in the U.S. but on a global basis, and that necessarily meant that we had to treat the securities that we were selling, the SAFs, just you know, just like what they were securities and and abiding by U.S. regulations in doing so, which means that. You know, we couldn't have a public ICO uh, in sort of the traditional 2017 sense, and uh, and it had to be restricted to accredited investors, and and our hands were tied. And so, you know, to not do that, let me say it this way: to to not be that conservative risks the or would risk the entire project and wouldn't be consistent with our goal of creating a hundred-year company. Awesome, and. So you could you just give me a breakdown of what, um, how your platform works from like you know if you want you want to build things on it, uh, how the you know the token metrics are and everything really that someone needs to know whether they just want to participate as a developer yeah. or you know as an institution or as an investor or something like that. Yeah, sure. Well, there are three services on the platform to start: uh, cryptocurrency with native support for micropayments. So what I mean by that is that because of our performance and there's no proof of work, so really low cost, high throughput, very low cost, we're able to process you know, micropayments, meaning Alice can pay Bob a fraction of a cent, a fraction of a penny, and she can do so economically. All of that can be done directly on the graph, on the platform, and that's with the cryptocurrency service. That's number one. Number two, distributed file storage, uh, which is needed for building arbitrary applications. And then number three, smart contract support. And and we have direct support for Solidity scripts in that first version of, of the smart contract service. So those are the three. To use the platform, uh, it's, it's not unlike other public platforms. For, with every API call, a developer would make a micropayment for the use of that API in our currency, HBAR. We, we call our currency HBARs. And so every every API call 
is accompanied with a micropayment to Hedera for processing the, that micropayment, I'm sorry, that, that API call. That micropayment gets split into two parts. One goes to fund the organization, the operations of Hedera, and the other part gets distributed to all the nodes in the network that are processing these, these API calls. And, and it's really that simple, that's, that's all there is to it. Um, so for developers, there's an API specification. It's, I don't think it's on the website yet, but it's imminent. In fact, you know, we, we're having Hedera 18, our first developers conference, in about two weeks. It's the middle of October with a global hackathon in nine different cities. And, uh, and the, you know, but certainly by then, prior to then, the APIs will be made fully public and developers can go and see the specification and, and begin writing code. That's, so that's it from a developer perspective and a little bit about the token economics. Um, there's a little bit more that's kind of interesting, and that is that as an organization, we're holding two-thirds, at least two-thirds of the tokens in our wallet, our treasury wallet, for at least five years. And that has to do with the security of the network, and it has everything to do with the math. And so mathematically, if it's the case that fewer than a third of the tokens are in the market, uh, available for use on the platform, you know, in trade on the exchanges, etc. As long as fewer than a third are in the market, then it's technically impossible for bad actors to attack the network using something known as civil attacks. Uh, right. And, and so, um, until the value of the token is sufficiently high, that it becomes practically impossible for any single or small group of bad actors to buy up a full third of our cryptocurrency. Until that happens, um, Hedera as an organization will hold two thirds of the tokens in treasury. When it does happen, when we do reach that point where it's practically impossible to corner the market on the coins, then we'll go ahead and sell treasury down and float the rest of the tokens into the market. Um, so that's a little bit more about the token economics of, uh, of the platform. That's very interesting. <laughs> um, because, I mean, we have seen that problem happen to so many other different projects when the token eco uh, uh, economics were yeah. not put together that well. And, you know, the bad actors do what they had to do. So what are your thoughts then you know looking at your background you have seen the tech bubble come and burst and then you have you know through different startups but generally what is your general view on cryptocurrency as a market and what do you think is going to happen to bitcoin yeah so for cryptocurrency as a market i think it's here to stay i think regulation is coming and that's a good thing not a bad thing, we embrace it because I don't think that the cryptocurrency market is going to grow much beyond where it is today until the regulation happens. Once the regulation is in place, then the professional investors, you know, the, 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 the big institutions, know the rules of the game and, and that eliminates risk and when risk goes down, then they will be more likely to be involved. And so I think that day will come. I, I don't think that it's five years away. I think it's a year or two away, hopefully, expecting that to be the case. And so as a, as a category, as a market, 
I think this is here is here to stay. It's here for the long term. Um, and, and I think that also to to realize its potential, we had to solve the problems of performance. I don't think that it's practical. Uh, no one, and I'm not suggesting anybody else does. I think everybody recognizes that you can't have a real uh, vibrant crypto cryptocurrency at five transactions per second. You know, and so Bitcoin started off with the aspiration of being a cryptocurrency, and it turned into a store of value, more like digital gold, not really a, a currency. And so there's still a a pent up demand for cryptocurrency and especially micropayments. Micropayments as a technology enable new business models, improve uh, enterprises top line with new forms of revenue streams as well as their bottom line and its ability to eliminate uh, you know, you know, payment terms and having to float accounts receivables or pay fees on credit card transactions. So there's a lot of, a lot of value in micropayments as a technology. With the addition of those to the market and the regulation that's going to come, kind of come around, I am very bullish that this is going to take off. Um, I don't know if ICOs are here to stay. There are a lot of reasons to believe that sort of the ICOs as we know them from you know 2017 days um, may not be around for the long term, and uh, that's debatable. What I do think will be around for the long term are security tokens, more generally the tokenization of arbitrary assets and uh, taking assets that are hard to make liquid uh, and, and certainly hard to sell fractional ownership of and, and then giving them a security token or a token that makes it possible to to sell fractional ownership of, uh, of those hard assets is a huge concept. It's a really big big deal and I think it's going to dwarf everything that we've seen in the ICO market in terms of volume and, and usage. Sorry, could you as, could you uh, give it an example of that, of uh, an arbitrary sure. uh, product? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, let's take the Mona Lisa, for example. Let's hypothetically, let's, let's say that I own the Mona Lisa. Well, it's a painting and it's hard for me to sell fractions of the Mona Lisa to potential investors out there that want to own it. I mean, there's a lot of friction in that process if it's possible at all. By taking a security token that um, is um, is built in such a way, along with the exchanges that will trade security tokens, are, are, are created in such a way to be compliant with uh, securities regulation, I can issue a security token and then anybody that can qualify to participate on that exchange can buy a fraction of the Mona Lisa. Literally, they can buy a fraction of the Mona Lisa and that money comes to me. I get liquidity in this hard asset being the Mona Lisa painting and people out there get to create new uh, portfolios of assets that previously were impossible and it's you know it's not just the Mona Lisa it could be real estate it could be gold you just you name it it's it's just this notion of tokenizing assets generally and creating liquidity where none previously existed that's a huge deal huge concept it's gonna dwarf everything we've seen so far yeah that's incredible so with your platform now 
uh, where are you guys at and uh, for someone who want to get involved i know that the even the private sale is completed now so when do you think you would get listed and for someone who would want to get in uh, on your project whether as a developer or as an investor right now where where are we where, yeah. where do they go so for investors per se there's really no opportunity to participate and again that goes back to the sec so we finished our crowd sale uh accredited crowd sale about a month ago and at that point in time we uh you know for for some particular legal and regulatory reasons we made a public statement saying we will no longer raise money in using the saft uh, the way we had previously now having said that um, there are opportunities for people that want to get some tokens to work with us to help test the network and the developer community is front and center on this uh, at Hedera 18 the conference we're going to be handing out cards that have tokens uh, you know it's a scratch card that people will be able to, to take and use the tokens on the test networks to help us debug and, and test those test networks and they'll get tokens in exchange for the work that they're doing on our behalf um, and so there's still that opportunity um, I think the best place to go is to hedera18.com to uh, to maybe learn some of the details of that our telegram channel is a good place to to hang out and watch for details on on this sort of thing uh, and so so there there is that and then there will be ongoing programs between now and the end of Q1 of next year, end of March next year, where, where we do involve the developer community on a further basis to help us prove out, harden the platform, test the platform, and people will be able to get tokens, earn tokens for that work. And the work that we're describing here is basically us providing a set of tools that do something on the platform that we're wanting to test. So it's not hard. Anybody will be able to do it, but it will require that, that uh, people people take some action to help us in that way. And even that is uh, is a result of securities law. I mean, we can't just give away tokens again because of the way securities laws are are regulated in in the United States. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much clear enough. And lastly, someone just asked a question. Uh, on one of the groups that I'm involved in here, Bitcoin Banter. Sure. Okay, how does Hashgraph deal with volatility yeah. in node participation? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, so every cryptocurrency is going to have some volatility, but what we are going to do is make it possible for somebody that is building a dApp on the application or they have a wallet on the, uh, you know, for, for the platform building DAP on the platform rather and they have a wallet and or they have a wallet when when you need to buy the token to make API so you have to make API calls with the token and we're trying to structure this so that when you look at your wallet you will be able to see the cost of the API call denominated in fiat and that cost in fiat will not change but the um, the you know the the number of H bar required to buy that same API call in fiat may fluctuate, and so in near real time, 
we're going to make it possible to buy the number of HBARs that are required to make the API calls required to use the the DAP. You know, so so we're trying to address it in this way, and there'll be other mechanisms that are put in place as well. And there's one more piece of this that I'll just go off very quickly on. We're going to have Treasury. One one sort of unique aspect of the project is that we haven't sold that many tokens. We raised $120 million, but we only sold approximately, I think it's 16, maybe 17% of the total token pool through that through that $120 million, which means Treasury has billions of dollars of value. And uh, we will use that in the future, potentially, to help uh, reduce the volatility where it's possible and appropriate as a tool. And, uh, and we'll be able to do that because we have that kind of, of value there. So that was that. There was one of the questions about um, can people that are not nodes view the transactions? I think maybe that was E or D, I forget. We are going to have what we're calling a mirror network. So um, it's the equivalent of a full node, but it, the difference is that, that a mirror node doesn't have write capability. It only has read capability. And it doesn't really reduce the uh, it doesn't tax the network. And so maybe we have an initial network to start of 39 council members. We haven't talked about the council member the council in this call, but 39 council members each running a node in this very first version of the network. And then there could be hundreds or thousands of mirror nodes out there that have all of the information, full transparency. Anybody that wants to run one, would be able to do so, and it doesn't tax the resources of the network. So having visibility into what's going on uh, and transparency into what's going on is is thereby design, and, and it's what we call the mirror net. Um, give me another one from the end, like D or right. in that area there were some that sounded reasonable. Yep. Oh, uh, I think F was how does Envision the economic Okay, how does Envision the economics of mineless system computer power as backs yeah. the value of the Bitcoin? Artifactic no. scarcity so, from the mining resources involved seems like marketplace sure. protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Bitcoin, um, people argue that the value of Bitcoin is rooted in the work that's being done by the miners, right? Yes. Because the miners are spending a lot of money to prop up Bitcoin. We're fundamentally different. The value, the fundamental value of the token, in our case, is in what the market is willing to pay for the API calls and what we pay the nodes for their participation in processing those API calls, those two. And so the nodes in the network will get paid, Hedera will decide what to pay them, but the nodes in the network will get paid the fees that are paid to the network for processing these API calls. All that we're gonna take from that revenue is what is required to fund operations, and that's it, right? I mean, there are no dividends going out of this or anything like that. All the revenue flows in 
we pay our costs to run the organization, everything else goes to the nodes. And so the value of the token is a function of what the market is willing to pay for those API calls because they see value, you know, application developers see value in the platform and are willing to build projects on top of that and then they have their business models and their customers that want to use those applications. We have a direct sort of traditional uh, value of the token rooted in, in what the market is, is willing to pay for the network itself and what we pay the miners for their participation. Right, but yeah. I think we can we can end it here. There's so many questions, but at least you have you know tackled like four of them. So that's awesome. All right, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was a blast. I was looking forward to this, and thanks to your team to making it happen. Okay, well, thank you, Gray. I appreciate your interest, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Awesome. Have a nice day. Further. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hello once again, and that was the end of our conversation. And just before you go, just want to communicate a few things with you uh, quickly. If you have uh, enjoyed any of the podcasts or this specific podcast episode, I would appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family through your social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc., as well as write me a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcast app. That would be fantastic. It helps me flourish and sustain this podcast as well. Uh, we also on other platforms like SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher Radio, um, and all other major podcast platforms. So whichever way you're listening to it, I would appreciate it if you leave me a review. You can also subscribe to the Grey Podcast through my website, greyjabesi.com, G-R-E-Y-J-A-B-E-S-I.com. There you also find some of the blogs that I'm writing sometimes and you get notified as soon as the new episode has been published until next time enjoy and be productive thank you